And, and I realized my story is a gift because in most cases, not every, but in most cases, it's probably more extreme than the person I'm talking to. And yet I found richness and a, another side, a redemptive conclusion to that strange journey out of that subculture. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. I started reading Philip Yancey in the 1980s. In the decades since, he's written more than 25 books, including What's So Amazing About Grace, Disappointment with God, Where Is God When It Hurts, and The Jesus I Never Knew. Philip Yancey is a writer who starts with genuine questions instead of pat answers. He has said, I write books for myself. My books are a process of exploration and investigation of things I wonder about and worry about. His most recent book from 2021 is the memoir, Where the Light Fell. It's a gripping story that starts with family dysfunction and religious dysfunction and moves toward the light and freedom of grace. It's the story of how Philip Yancey came to love God out of gratitude rather than fear. I was mighty glad when he agreed to talk to me for the Habit Podcast. Philip Yancey, I am so grateful that you've made time to be on the Habit Podcast today. Well, it's good to be with you. It's a cold, snowy day here in Colorado, and yeah. nothing warms my heart more than talking to other writers. <laughs> well, great. Yeah, it's, it's a snowy day here in Nashville, too. I uh, first was exposed to your work in the 1980s. I, I read Fearfully Wonderfully Made and just loved mm. it and got the mistaken impression that you were a doctor. <laughs> I was confused about that for a <laughs> For a long time. In fact, I loved I loved that book so much that for a little while in college, I was uh, I did the the pre med track because I wanted to be a, a doctor just like Philip Yancey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt like I learned so much about the human body that I could practice, but I couldn't get anybody to let me go <laughs> practice surgery on them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I visited uh, a sort of sat in on a surgery and realized this is not for me. Philip Yancey can be a doctor, but I, but not me. Uh, and then when you kept cranking out books, I thought, how does this guy have time to write these books and, and also be a surgeon? And then I realized that you, that, that you weren't the, the surgeon in that book. So that's right. <laughs> well, all of your books have been about suffering and grace. Mm -hmm. Um, and you use anecdotes from your life throughout all these books you've written. Um, but now you have, you have um, written a memoir. Mm -hmm. um, and so I am, I'm curious to know um, why, I mean, why a memoir? Why did you, what made you decide after, you know, after this, long career of writing on these themes, um, why, why did you decide to do a memoir this time? Hmm. I have been planning this for a long time. I realized, well, part of it goes back to conversations with Frederick Buechner, who is a friend as well hmm. as a writing mentor. And he wrote a book called Listening to, Listen to Your Life. And that was his theme. And he had quite a quite a life, uh, which was shadowed by his father's suicide. And he never mm -hmm. wrote about it for 
several decades out of fear of what it would do to his family, especially his mother. Yeah. And then finally, he decided that this is my life. It's part of who I am. I need to face into it and include it in my writing. Well, I had several incidents that are along that line. There was there was not a suicide involved, but dramatic incidents. And I realized that I have been given a gift. Didn't mm -hmm. feel like a gift when I was experiencing it. Mm -hmm. But the gift is <laughs> that I grew up in a rather extreme toxic family and I grew up in a rather extreme toxic church. And those are the background. That's the material that out of which I wrote couple dozen books, but I had never really claimed that life and explored it. And for myself, discovered how that experience went on to inform and work itself out in my writing. So I did it. Well, I write all of my books for myself, trying to figure something <laughs> out. I, I joke that if I don't know the answer to a question, I write a book about it. <laughs> Because it gives me a chance to go to people who do have some answers and to spend the time that I need. And so I'm over 70 years old now, and I, I decided while my mind is still working, I need to go back and write what turned out to be a prequel yeah. that explains some of the very different idea-driven books that I've been doing for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. I was so interested in that idea that you, you write that in your book, that, that this is a prequel mm -hmm. to all those other books. Um, and, um, well, I, I just, I, I found it fascinating. You know, that you, you say you grew up in a toxic home, toxic church. I, you know, I, you, one is tempted to, to summarize it as a movement from legalism to grace, but to, to call your your growing up, you know, legalism is almost not fair to legalism. It, it, it was, it was <laughs> you know, more more than that, right? It, it, well, um, yeah, I got a good dose, and and frankly, one of my main goals years ago was I'd like to capture the subculture, that evangelical slash fundamentalist subculture. In my case, pretty extreme because it was mixed in with uh, some angry people, a lot of institutional racism and things like that. Yeah. And we're living in a time when a lot of people are ditching the church for various yeah. reasons. I've heard there may be as many as 25 to 30 million ex-evangelicals. These are people who are raised in the subculture and maybe had some good experiences at a summer camp or Young Life mm -hmm. or Youth or Christ Club. And yet something happened along the way to turn them off, whether the, it was how the church treated science or divorced people or gay people or whatever. When you talk to them, they all, they all have these experiences of running into judgment and uh, un-Jesus-like attitudes from the church. Yeah. So I listen to them and I say, oh, <laughs> let me tell you, it's a lot worse than that. Well, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian writer. Yeah. Well, I am, but let me tell you my story. And even coming out of that environment, it can be, it can be useful. Uh, don't throw away everything. Don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. Don't forfeit a chance to connect on a daily basis with the God of the universe because of the way some crank treated you 20 years ago. And, and I realized my story is a gift because in most cases, not every, but in most cases, it's 
probably more extreme than the person I'm talking to. And yet I found richness and uh, a, a, another side, a redemptive, a, a redemptive conclusion to that strange journey out yeah. of that subculture. Yeah. You, uh, you said that your, your nephew once sent you a quote that said, an idea cannot be responsible for those who claim to believe in it. Right, right. Uh, um, and yeah, and I interpret that as don't blame God for the church you know? <laughs> and don't judge God by the church. Yeah. We all go through, we have to go through that sorting out process because when you're a kid growing up, you tend to believe what people around you say. So I was a racist, I was a legalist. Yeah. And then when you find out, well, they were wrong about some, some things, it feels like betrayal. Mm-hmm. And you go through this process of sorting out what's worth keeping, what's worth throwing away. Yeah. Yeah. You, a, a recurring theme in this book is, is sorting out what's, what's real and what's fake. You know, you and your mm. brother, uh, Marshall, uh, working through those, those questions together in parallel. I'm not sure what the right, uh, spatial metaphor there is, but, but your, um, um, your, well, your brother, sort of reached some different con- conclusions or dealt dealt with that difficult childhood in different ways from you. Mm. Um, and I'm really interested in, in the idea at, at one point you say that, that as you, as you write, you often imagine your brother, you know, on your shoulder or behind your shoulder or whatever saying, are you sure you mean this? Are you sure this is true? Mm. Uh, are yeah. you just sort of, spouting the same propaganda that, that we got when we were kids. Um, questions like that. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit if you have. Sure. We grew up in a completely church-saturated, religion-saturated environment. In fact, high school years, we spent living in a trailer just eight feet wide, 48 feet long on church property. So we could never get away from church. Every time the doors were open, we were there. Plus, my mother made her living as a Bible club teacher. So even before school, we would be dragged around Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, hearing the same Bible stories every day. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a good way to learn the Bible. But uh, we also learned the behavior. We learned how to pray in a way to bring tears to your eyes. We Mm -hmm. learned how to give testimonies. We learned how to go forward and confess sin or accept Jesus as our savior. And we did all that multiple times. That was, <laughs> that was the, uh, the environment mm-hmm. that we soaked up. And once you've done that, the, the statement you made really comes from my brother and haunts me. How do you tell what's real from what's fake? Mm-hmm. Because you've done the fake stuff so long. How would you know if something real came along? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I deal with in the book. And uh, for people who have grown up in a toxic environment like that, um, to survive it, you usually have to choose something that's not not particularly healthy. And Mm -hmm. we chose very different responses. My brother decided, I'm going to be the opposite of everything I was taught. Yeah. So they had all these rules. I'm going to break every one of those rules, and I'm going to break rules they haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> and he did. So he yeah. dropped out of college, uh, forfeited a brilliant career in music, started taking LSD, moved to California, lived with a bunch of different women, experimented 
with uh, all kinds of sexuality and got addicted to several substances along the way. Well, that's one way. And I watched my brother, he's two years older, and realized that's not a very healthy response. He's the one who suffers because of that. It, yeah. Those were self-destructive choices. My own way was kind of what I call turtling down, to build a shell around myself so that those people couldn't get to me, so that there's nothing they could do to get inside me, to protect myself and get through. And, and, and that involved uh, trying to conquer pain and, and doing mm -hmm. these things. And people, kids do that. You know, there's a whole yeah. self-harming subculture, and it's very unhealthy. But sometimes to survive unhealth, you reach for unhealth. Mm -hmm. And it'll get you through. And I would say to kids who are going through that now, you know, um, you're not going to stay there. You're not going to be there the rest of your life. Be careful. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> but try to survive until you can emerge and try to emerge as intact as you can. Because um, you're vulnerable when you're a kid. Don't let yeah. them get to you. You preserve yeah. something in the core that you can come back and, and later nourish. Yeah. You talk about this idea of turtling down, of, of closing yourself off to, you know, emotional life, to the world around you. Um, and, and your story of conversion, you know, after conversion from ungrace to grace mm. is this story of opening up. And it seems mm -hmm. to me, I mean, there's so I have so many thoughts swirling swirling around your conversion story. So I'd, I'd love to sort of dig into that a little bit. Um, but the the way you open up spiritually, and and you know, as you say, you are in the midst of of Bible college. Hmm. Uh, you even though you're you know, sort of in rebellion against what was going on at the Bible college, then you're faced with natural beauty and you're faced with music and you're faced with romantic love. And it's sort of, you start to see the world as a, as a smiling place. Mm. As you said, are you, are you quoting Augustine there? Um, to, to yes. Smiling place? Uh, that is Augustine. And in fact, the book title, the memoir title is where the light fell. And that's also from Augustine oh, okay. who said, he said, uh, I could not look at the sun directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And in my case, I would, I would change that a little bit. I couldn't look at the sun directly because I had been scorched by the sun. Yeah. You know, I grew up with this angry bully God image yeah. and uh, didn't want to have anything to do with that kind of God. Mm -hmm. And it was only where the light fell, the mm -hmm. things you mentioned, nature, classical music, romantic love that I realized my church had misrepresented that God, yeah. that uh, the, the one, the creator responsible for those good things, mm -hmm. the uh, dona bona, as, yeah. as Augustine said, the good things in this world, that is someone I want to know. Yeah. I, I love that quote from G.K. Chesterton. I think he stole it from somebody, but he often used it. He said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. Yeah. And I, I had some, I had thankfulness and I had no one to thank. And then I realized, Oh, God is responsible for these good things. God isn't that creature, that angry policeman, cosmic policeman that I was raised believing in. Yeah. And, and that, that also seems to me prepares you to be 
a writer too, right? Mm. I mean, I know you had skills, you know, writing skills before that. Uh, you you write in your book about you know you had done journalism that kind of thing, but it seems to me that this that that same opening to the world you know, to, to creation that led to your rec- actually receiving the God of grace in Christ mm-hmm. was also what made it, you know, made you ready to, to be a writer. Is that fair to say? It is fair. Of course, I didn't know that at the time because uh-huh. I didn't, when you're growing up, you don't know what you're going to be, but sure. that uh, suspicious on the edge, marginal observer stance is mm-hmm. good for a writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause you're, you're not really living. You're, you're watching, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. we writers are, uh, well, Annie Dillard is a wonderful writer said the reason, the reason writers write so much about their childhood is because that's the only time they ever really lived. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so the rest of the time they're kind of leeching off of other people's yeah. experiences. Oh, wow. Um, and and I, at first, I saw my family as this uh, collection of uh, misanthropes and and uh, sociopaths, you know. <laughs> and and then I I began to see them as great material. You can't come, you can't invent these things. You, you just can't make them up. Yeah. And and writers do that. They take what to everybody else is is uh, stuff to throw away and try yeah. to make something worthwhile out of it. Something yeah. lasting. Yeah, I know. You said earlier, this you, you came to see this this life of yours as a, as a gift. It is, it is, and and that uh, oh, being being open and awakened to the sensory world that was new to me. Yeah. The, the nature, the music, and all that, and writing is an odd combination of creating and exploring that sensory world in the most boring circumstances possible. Cause you're sitting in an office. Uh-huh. If there's anything going on, that's beautiful. It's distracting. You got to get rid of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, mostly yeah. we have, I mean, look at our, we're looking at our offices right now. They're surrounded by books, you know, yeah, not, right. not plants and animals <laughs> and things like that. And, and so we're living in this pretty, monastic, austere environment, but trying to create something that provokes a sensory experience in the reader. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an odd combination. No wonder. <laughs> I, I read one time that uh, of all professions, writers are the most likely to become addicted to smoking cigarettes huh. and alcohol. We, of course, we know stories of alcoholic writers. And I think part of that is just you're you're in the sensory deprived environment uh-huh. and it feels unnatural, even though you're working to create one for somebody else. <laughs> so you, your body is craving, give me something to do rather than just sit here clicking inset <laughs> clicks on my c- computer keyboard, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, earlier in, in the conversation, you mentioned the idea that you, when you have a question, you then you write a book about it and you're yes. being a little facetious, but, but that's also a posture, it seems to me, that you're, until you move from ungrace to grace, you can't, you can't do that as a writer, right? You can't say, I've got a question, and now I'm going to go pursue, pursue the, the answer. You have to start with an answer and then write to that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, the floor is now open for comment. 
<laughs> yes. When you go into a Christian bookstore, and there aren't many left, <laughs> but when you go into one, most of the books, most of the bestsellers for sure, are written by people who are experts in some mm -hmm. way. Uh, many of them would be well-known uh, pastors, like Chuck Swindoll or Max Lucado, yeah. or professors at a seminary. Here's a commentary on Romans or you know, things like that. And, and I read those people. I, I buy their books. I, that's how I learn. But I'm not one of those people. I'm not ordained, and mm -hmm. I'm not a professor. Uh, I am a journalist. That's how I got my start. My only job really was working as a journalist for Campus Life magazine, and I've written hundreds and hundreds of freelance articles and then books after that. And a journalist starts usually with a question mm. and an assignment to explore something he doesn't know where it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Or she doesn't. Um, we, if somebody hired me, if some magazine hired me and said, Philip, uh, how do you put together a nuclear bomb? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. But that's my job to go find out how to do that and to express mm -hmm. it in such a way that my readers who know even less about it than I do, can say, oh, that's that's how you put together a nuclear bomb. Hopefully it doesn't get published in Iran or yeah, right. <laughs> somewhere like that. But anyway, um, we take complex topics and, and represent the reader in trying to understand them. We're mm -hmm. not telling the reader, here is something I know you don't know. We're, yeah. we're saying, let's join hands and explore this topic. And maybe by the time we come out the other side, we'll have some insight that we didn't when we started. And and that's that is my natural stance. It's not a it's not a, an expert talking down. This is what you need to learn. I because of my background, I learned to be rather distrustful of those authority figures because they were telling me things I later found out were not true. Yeah. And so I wanted a, a different approach. I wanted that explore together from the bottom up rather than the top down approach. Yeah. Speaking of, I've already we've touched some on your your ex experience, your conversion from ungrace to grace um, when you were in Bible college, mm. and that process involved you re re envisioning. I don't know what the right right verb is. Um, the story of uh, the parable of the Samaritan, mm -hmm. and you know. I, I grew up in in church, and I, I heard all about the, the story of the Samaritan. It, it was always, don't be like the three guys who walk past the, the man broken on the side of the road. Be like the Good Samaritan, um, which was, I think, the way you got that story. And your moment of, of really coming to Christ very much was connected with you seeing that um, almost a, a visionary look at that story in which you realize you're not, you're neither the three guys who walk past the, the man broken on the road, nor are you the Samaritan. You are the man broken on the side of the road and the Samaritan helping that man is, is Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if this, what's the question? <laughs> the, um, how do, do you have any insight on how you got to a place where you were able to um, not throw away that story, 
Um, but but re you know understand that story in a new way that you've you've spoken about your your suspicion of the authorities. Um, here here was a, a moment in which you um, experienced that story, um, and it makes a difference in your life. And it's it, there's something. It, it's a matter of you getting free of the authorities that have interpreted that story for you before. Hmm. Right. I talked about the difficulty of distinguishing the fake from the real. Yeah. And I had turtled down. I had been been pretty impervious to the environment around me. It was about, I was at a Bible college, which is another mm-hmm. story. How did I end up there? But I wasn't your ideal student. Quite the opposite. I would read magazines in chapel. I would sit out in the patio and read books like uh, Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. You know, I was just kind of a jerk. Yes, a little obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. And always on the, the dean's prayer list, you know, what should we kick the student out? Is he polluting other students? And, uh, of course, I thought myself superior. These yeah. uh, smiley-faced Bible college students who believe all this stuff. And and I'm I'm sophisticated. I can see things they can't see. Yeah. And... Then I was softened by the things that we, we mentioned earlier. The light was falling on, on those places. But I, again, how do I tell what's fake and what's real? And I had a, a revelation, I suppose would be the safest word to say, uh, that was completely unexpected, that came out of nowhere. And I think I, I required that at the time. Mm-hmm. It, it was one of the few that there were two things that happened to me that I didn't have control of. in that time of life. One was falling in love. I didn't even believe in romantic love. I thought it was an invention of the 14th century. And then boom, there I was uh, in love. And then this experience, and I've I've not written in detail about it in 40 years, because as soon as you do that, people will say, well, I didn't have an experience like that. Well, you're right. Uh, God deals with us differently. And I think God understood (laughs) I needed something that I didn't concoct that I didn't control, something that came from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so I was in this prayer meeting, and I had never prayed there. Uh, It was a group of us who would go to university. They would evangelize. They would go and and talk about Jesus to university students. I would sit in the student center and watch basketball games, you know. (laughs) And then we would have this prayer meeting, and they would each take turns praying and wait five seconds for me, and I never prayed. So they would Mm -hmm. say amen and take off. And they were my friends. They accepted my uh, apostate <laughs> self. <laughs> and, and then one day I started praying. And as I started praying, um, this revelation of the Good Samaritan parable came to me. And, and the twist, the projection there, mm-hmm. was that it was obvious that I saw, that I understood myself to be the one the tramp in the in the ditch, you know. Yeah. Here, I thought I was morally superior and sophisticated and all that, and instead, uh, I was the neediest one of all. Mm. And then, and then, th- the face of the Samaritan was transposed with the face of Jesus, and Jesus kept reaching down, trying to help me. And each time, I would spit in his face, mm-hmm. and and it was just a, a stunning insight to who I was. I I thought I had it all together. But actually, I was the neediest one. And that is the beginning of grace. Henry Nouwen used to say, 
Grace is a free gift of God, nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. But to receive a gift, you've got to have your hands open. Mm. And my hands had been closed tight in a fist, and, and grace would just fall to the ground around me. I never mm. received it. And suddenly I, I realized I was I was the one with the with the needy hands, open them up and take it from there. And that changed everything. I, I went from a uh from a jerk, you know, from an, a, a renegade on that campus to someone who eventually became a Christian writer. I, I would have thrown up if you predicted that at the time. But, <laughs> but uh, there it was. God has a sense of humor and yeah. a great sense of compassion as well. He dealt yeah. with me uh, very tenderly, uh-huh. the tender mercies of God. Yeah. One of your concerns in even doing this, this, memoir at all was the concern that you would open up old wounds, that you would uh, hurt people uh, from your life, people you loved. Um, how did you push through? I mean, you're talking about this, the Bible college, um, you know, you, there was a, there was a, at one point, as you say, you had a conversation with uh, the president or the former president who said, why did you say these things about us? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know all kinds of dirt on people, but but I practice the golden rule, and I don't say you know I don't say the things that I wouldn't want them to say about me. Mm. How did you? How or why did you push through those concerns? And and because some some people come out looking pretty bad in in this memoir that you've written. They do, and when I thought about that statement that the Bible College president made, I believe in the golden rule. I, too, believe in the golden rule. And actually, if I am off the rails, I want somebody to correct me. I want somebody to call me on it. And yes, I have hurt some people along the way, but it also helps some people along the way because there there are a lot of people who are trapped in toxic environments, a little bit different than mine, but Mm -hmm. toxic environments, and they need somebody to say, uh, you know what? You're not going to hell just because you took one sip of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, <laughs> there is, there's more to life than a series of rules. In fact, mm-hmm. as Jesus demonstrated with the Pharisees, often it's rule keepers who are most likely to miss the message of grace, a gospel yeah. of grace. Yeah. And so, I've got another, I've got a constituency out there who who are trapped in, maybe trapped in similar environments to what I grew up in, and I have a responsibility to them as well. The other thing that's happened to my surprise is that the people I thought I would really hurt have not been hurt. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, my brother loves the book, gives it away, feels like like it validates him as a human Uh, being. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you. And my mother can't read it. She's uh, She's got macular degeneration, so she can't really read. But having some of these things surface has brought about a remarkable, I wouldn't say reconciliation, but at least steps toward that. They had not spoken, heard each other's voice for 51 years. And since I turned in the book manuscript, we've been on the phone, a three-way phone conversation three times. Really? And, and are working toward forgiveness or as close as we can get. And I would never have predicted that. I waited through years because I was afraid I would rupture things further. 
and exactly the opposite has happened. So that's been a kind of grace that I didn't expect. And, and oh, that's so great line, to hear. And you're talking about rupture between your, your mother and your brother. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, having read the book, I am so happy to hear that because I, mm. that was, I, I didn't get the impression that that was, that was going to be possible. Uh, the most amazing thing of all is that uh, my brother wrote a card that had three words on it and mailed it to my mother. It's not easy for him to write. He's uh, stroke afflicted, so he has to use his left hand, which is not his, his normal hand. And just stuffing an envelope and putting a stamp on it. You know, these are hard things for a stroke victim to do. Yeah. And the card had three words. I forgive you. Wow which I never would have predicted to happen. Um, so that was an unexpected grace that came even after the book and, and calmed my fears greatly. Oh, thank you for telling me that. I'm so glad about this. Because um, I've, been, I've been worried about your family. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, your, your mother um, doesn't read any of your books, is that right? That's right. Yeah, she can, mm -hmm. but she even when she could, she didn't read your books. Is that, is Correct. That, yes. I think she might have skimmed through them just to see if I wrote anything about her or something like that, uh -huh. but she doesn't claim to have read them. How do you feel about that? Uh, you don't mind probably relieved, you don't actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I said one time, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, Mother, that we never – neither Marshall or I ever felt any kind of a sense of blessing from you. I was just reading in Genesis about the, you know, the Old Testament, Isaac giving Jacob the blessing and Jacob, this was so important. He would cheat and find a way to get it when it was actually yeah. due to his brother Esau. And uh, neither one of us got it. Here's, here's a guy who's trying to break every rule in the book. And he didn't yeah. get the blessing. And here's a guy who makes his living as a Christian author. And he didn't get the blessing either. <laughs> and, and neither did she. She came yeah. up with a family. And I think one key to understanding difficult families is just look back to where they, how they were raised. And usually it's worse. It's worse mm -hmm. off. I keep thinking if, if every generation learns what the previous generation did wrong why aren't we better at it now <laughs> it's it's human it's just a broken world we live in yeah yeah well memoir writing a memoir is a you know very much a, a function of trans translating transposing identity into you know written form, word form. I mean, we, we have this, this inchoate sense of who we are, and then you start trying to, to put it into words and, and things happen. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know, are there ways that your sense of self was shaped by the act of putting your identity, yourself into words? Very much so. At one point, I call it a verbal selfie because there's one person in the foreground. And yeah, right. and uh, in earlier drafts, I just wrote down everything I could remember. And it was two and a half times longer than the book turned out to be because I brought in all of these characters from my family. And wise editors said, you know, you're right. They, they are eccentric. They're very interesting. They should be in novels. But this is a memoir about you. So mm -hmm. make that your 
your requirement before including them in this book. But I, uh, in a sense, I didn't know what that selfie would turn out to be. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned that it, it was like doing a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle with no picture in the cover to guide you. So you have these little uh, puzzle pieces with plenty edges and and you, every, every once in a while you find how one fits into the other, but you don't know how it's gonna result until the end. And you started by saying, I write about suffering and grace. Well, I, I only realized that in the process of going back and see the things that I've written in the person that I am, where I came from. And now I can understand, mm. oh, no wonder you write about suffering because you went through a lot of suffering. Yeah. In fact, when you were one year old with no memory of this, your father died because of a theological error, because of mistake yeah. people made. And that did a lot to set the circumstances of your life from then on. And grace, I lived in a an atmosphere I call ungrace. It was mm -hmm. just, I never experienced grace. It was all trying to get God to like me, mm -hmm. and it doesn't work. You'll never do it that way. Jesus was clear about that. So e even though I had approached books like The Jesus I Never Knew, What's Amazing About Grace, just trying to come to terms with it, I was really trying to work out in print stuff that had had been boiling at a low level inside since childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, how how can you put together the kind of people in in some of these uptight churches, especially like a racist church, mm -hmm. with a person like Jesus? How how did that happen? And and these these are questions that in many ways were subliminal. Well, mm -hmm. writing is a good way to bring out subliminal stuff because you're yeah. sitting there just staring at a computer <laughs> screen or or a blank sheet of paper. And uh, it's like going to a, a therapy session and you're asking the questions and giving the answers at the same time. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> Are you saying until you wrote this book, you had never put it together that you're th the recurring themes in all your books, Suffering and Grace? <clears throat> Almost. I was working on the memoir at the time. And um, <laughs> funny story. And I was asked to speak at the University of Virginia. And I, I hate this, but when you when you agree to speak somewhere, they want to know a title right away. Well, I don't know what I'm going to speak about a year from now. You yeah, know? Right. I don't, yeah. So I always come up with something very generic <laughs> and says, we you know, we're publishing this brochure. We've got to have a we've got to have a title. I said, okay, two themes that haunt me. Mm. Oh, that's great. They wrote two themes that haunt me. <laughs> And then uh, as time got closer, I, I got to come up with two themes here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They're haunting me. Yeah. yeah and I, I was working on the memoir. And so it, it just became clear. This is what it is. And, and uh, Interesting. Th those are the themes I spoke about. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know quite how, how, to, how to talk about this, but th there's, you know, when, when you write a memoir, you know, there's, there's, so you're offering up these facts and you're offering interpretations of those facts and your reader is also getting the facts and the reader is also interpreting those facts. And sometimes that, that comes into, there's some, there's some tension there. And in, in the negative sense, you know, I, I've listened to some um, 
for some reason, you know, Audible gives these, these uh, if you subscribe to Audible, Audible, you get these free stories or whatever. And I've listened to a couple of celebrity stories recently, celebrity autobiographies from celebrities who didn't have good reputations. And mm-hmm. they, their, their explanation for their bad behavior, it's, it's always interesting to, to think about that, the tension between their interpretation of their, of their behavior or the facts on the ground and the way they've been portrayed. And then as a reader, it's sort of triangulating around these, these facts. All three of mm. us seem to have different, you know, sometimes I find it hard to, to accept the interpretation of the, of the memoirist. And I was so interested as I was reading yours and you're, you are, as you're telling the facts of say your, your um, teenagehood um, and you are um, not, as a child, I get the impression you didn't see yourself as anything all that special. And then, and then it's like, whoa, there were six kids chosen to participate at the CDC and lo and behold, I was one of them. And, and then, you know, this, this counselor told me I was up for valedictorian. And I guess what I'm saying is I, I read these facts. And I say this was, this was obviously a remarkable kid who didn't necessarily think of himself as, as remarkable. Um, and again, I don't know. This this isn't even a question. This is um, no. I I know what you're saying, and I I had never written a memoir, so I started yeah. reading all sorts of memoirs. Probably 300. I made a list one time. Really? Uh, o- over several years, <clears throat> just and some of them were terrible writing. Mm-hmm. But what I learned, I learned a couple things. I learned that. Um, that the secret to a memoir, unless the person is really famous, like a celebrity, sports figure, president of the United States, that kind of thing, the key to a successful memoir is what it does to the reader more than what you learn about the writer. Mm. Because in every one of those memoirs I read, no matter how good or bad they were, they triggered a memory from my own childhood or my own life that I wouldn't have retrieved if I had not read that book. Mm. Just that's what memoirs do. As as you're reading about someone else, you're also surfacing, bringing to the surface things that are in you about you. Mm -hmm. And in the letters I've and emails I've gotten since the book has been out, they generally tell their own stories. They Mm -hmm. comment a little bit on mine, but they they say mine wasn't quite like yours, and then they go ahead and tell me their stories. (laughs) I wanted to write a. when I looked at memoirs, there are some that are kind of grand old man looks back on life. Malcolm <laughs> McGreech wrote a three volume. He didn't quite finish it, but he titled it Chronicles of Wasted Time. <laughs> and he'd seen everything as old man. And he, he just kind of put it in perspective. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that showed an emerging point of view so mm-hmm. that when I'm a kid, I'm a naive kid that, lives in a trailer park, but I didn't, I didn't know any different. You know, I was just a trailer kid. And then when I was in high school, I realized, hey, I, I can make good grades. I'll just do that. And then became kind of the sassy J.D. Salinger type teenager. And, <laughs> yeah. and the uh, arrogant, obnoxious kid on a Bible college campus. And I wanted the memoir to somehow convey that spirit, that emerging spirit hmm. at various yeah. stages. So that's one reason I wrote I wrote the whole thing in the present tense, except a few things where I had to go back and talk about my mother's childhood and things like that. But uh, I didn't read that many memoirs that were written in the present tense, and I kept going back and forth. 
so many times I would go through and change every verb to past tense and then every verb. <laughs> it's a way of delaying writing. Yeah, right. but, uh, but I wanted to capture that immediacy and the emerging mm -hmm. because that's where we, we are. And now that I'm past 70, you know, I am who I am. It's not going to yeah. change much from now on. But I can look back and see, but I didn't used to be that way. Yeah. So what happened? in these various phases to change me that that's part of that exploration we were talking about earlier yeah yeah i i, I that put some things together for me uh, in terms of thinking about your story um because not you know, everybody gets that you know that's that's a risk when you sure when you present yourself uh, as superior looking down on these faithful people some people are offended by that and they're mm. and they're going to judge me by that and that but that, that is true to who I was at that time, and it's yeah. a risk I take. And if they keep reading, they find I don't stay that way, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they may not keep reading. They may, uh, they yeah, may right. just drop out. So. Yeah. Yeah, but this, there's um, it's, that's an interesting dynamic, this shifting relationship to truth um, mm -hmm. throughout the book, and yet you are trying to tell the truth as a, as a person who is where you are now. Yes. And of course, the book concludes before some of those stories I told you here, mm -hmm. stories, steps toward reconciliation in my own family. Uh, it doesn't conclude with a happy scene where we're all together, forgiving everything that's ever happened, you know, it, because it wasn't true. Yeah, it may be true. There are signs that it could go closer to that truth now, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, there have been steps toward it, at least not steps away from it. But uh, my family, like a lot of families, doesn't have one of those happy endings yet. Yet, yeah. Well, here's hoping that I mean the the story's the story's not done yet. So you're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to uh, wrap up the question I usually wrap up with, and that is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Make me want to write. Oh, I I learn from. So many. I wrote. I wrote about my favorite writers in a book called uh, Soul Survivor. Mm -hmm. Thirteen people who I say helped my faith survive the church, <laughs> <laughs> and I could just pick those out. I mean, there are classics in there like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. You read those, and at first it's so intimidating trying mm -hmm. to keep track of the Russian names and these yeah, big right. thick books, and then you get swept up and you find out I've been sitting here unmoving for three hours uh -huh. and reading this. Yeah. And, but uh, more to the point, Frederick Buechner is in that book also. He writes about, he writes about both fiction and nonfiction, and he writes about his nonfiction using the style of fiction. So I learned a lot from him, his storytelling style. Annie Dillard is in there, just uh -huh. a wonderful master of sentences and paragraphs. She's just got... Uh, She's got the gift. And Henry Nouwen, because he, he taught me vulnerability, just yeah. put it out there, you know, strip yeah. yourself. You can, you can help others when you do that. Um, so those, those each represent a different kind of perspective on writing. Mm -hmm. But from, from each one of them, I've taken something crucial in my own writing. Yeah. Well, Philip Yancey, your your writing has meant a lot to me through the years, and, and is is um, 
has shaped so many of the ways I, I think about the world. So thank you for your work and thank you for being uh, on the Habit Podcast. Well, it was new to me. I know about the Rabbit Room and I'd like to know more. And I thank you for what you're doing for writers out there. And it's amazing how many people want to write. Yeah. And in, so, in some ways, it's harder than ever because publishers are more demanding than ever. But in some ways, never in history has there been a time where I can write something today that this evening will be read in Kazakhstan and mm. Cambodia yeah. and Japan. And that's true of everybody listening to this podcast. It's just amazing how we have an entree that we've never had before. It's hard to make a living because nobody pays you for that stuff. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. But you can connect with people in, in a way that no one in history has been able to do. Yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, to, to have that opportunity open. Mm. So anyway, yeah. thanks again. And I hope we can talk again soon. Okay. I appreciate it, Jonathan. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.